You're listening to audio from Embassy Church. We exist to advance the message and ministry of Jesus in the city of Bloomington, on the campus of IU, and to the ends of the earth. How are we doing this morning, Embassy? I don't know if y'all were reading what I just read, but if you understood what was just read to you, all 202 words of it, um, hopefully I can get you to, to woo louder uh, in the next 35 minutes. I'm actually going to set a timer for 33. Um, our timer up here isn't working, and um, you'll hear it go off because, um, yeah, this is one massive run-on sentence, which can also lead to one massive run-on sermon, and I don't want to do that because we got some other stuff to get to. So, um, like Maria said, if you're new, welcome. Super glad you're here. My name's Chris Cook. I'm the lead pastor. Um, I want to introduce this new sermon series, so we got a lot to get to. I actually want to just jump into it uh, more quickly than not. So, um, keep looking at what you're looking at if you have your Bible open or uh, a device, but I want to look at this... Um, this greeting to kind of set up the sermon series that we're going to be in for the next two months. Um, Ephesians is this epistle of the church, okay? Uh, It gives us this beautiful picture of what the church is. Um, And it's six chapters, and so we're actually going to look at the first three chapters uh, here this fall, uh, and then when Advent comes, we'll work into some other stuff, uh, and we'll pick up the the latter three chapters in the spring. But you can break the the book up or the letter up um, that way. The first half of it is, is, you know, gospel position. Uh, The second half of it is gospel praxis or practice, okay? Um, And so uh, if you look at the first couple verses, which usually if you're reading a a New Testament letter, especially a Pauline epistle, um, we often skip over these first couple verses, don't we? Um, But I want to just draw a few things out of the first two verses before we jump into the meat of our text this morning, which would be verses three through six. But it's, it's Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by God's will, writing to the faithful saints who are in Christ Jesus at Ephesus. Okay, and then he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, um, I'm from Louisiana, but that gets a little complicated, and I don't know if you're anything like me, um, when you travel and someone asks you where you're from, and so me and my wife will get into this silly argument, uh, we do that a lot, um, we were arguing about Aggies last night, and I don't really like them, but anyway, that's neither here nor there, um, I'm an LSU fan and a Texas a and people, anyway, um, Another argument, silly argument we had is where I'm from. I was actually born in Texas, uh, but I grew up in Louisiana, and now that we live in Indiana, uh, we'll meet people when we're traveling, they'll ask where I'm from, and usually I'll say Louisiana, because I'm assuming you want to know something more about me than where I live. You want to know something about just kind of the cultural upbringing I have, but Allison tells me that's wrong, that I'm actually from Indiana now that I live in Indiana, and that gets weird and confusing, right? Um, so for a Christian, um, there's 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 kind of a weird answer to, to our identity and where we're from, all right? There's a locational reality, um, but there's a positional reality. And I want you to see this in the first couple of verses that Paul's writing to faithful saints who are at Ephesus, locational, but positional, they're in Christ. And it's the positional piece that matters the most. What that identity piece means, what it means to be in Christ is at the core of Christianity, It's at the core of what it means to be a Christian, because to be a Christian is a positional reality, okay, because of what God has done, as we're going to look at in the next couple, you know, uh, verses in this entire book. Um, It's a grace of being transformed from being an enemy of God to a friend, and your position has changed. 
all right? All religion is about performance. Christianity is about position, okay? And if you don't get this as a Christian, um, you don't understand your identity, and I guarantee you you're working for something instead of from something, okay? Um, and so when we, when we chose to preach the book of Ephesians, or I did at least, um, I'll, I'll, I'll I was looking at where we are as a church. Uh, We're a young church plant. We're 92 years old yet. Um, And the book of Ephesians, again, is this epistle to the church. It's this this beautiful letter that Paul writes to the church in Ephesus where he spent two and a half years as a church planner. Um, And he gives this, this awesome just overview, this like cosmic, deep theological treatise on what it means to be the church. And how does our position change our practice, okay? Um, and again, the in Christ part is important, but, but the at Ephesus is, is just as important because Ephesus is this, this ancient, just, you know, wondrous city. One of the great seven wonders of the ancient world was there, the temple of Artemis. Uh, and you can still actually go to Ephesus. It's modern-day Turkey. I've been there a few times. Uh, and you can see just the foundation for this temple. Uh, and, and it is multiple times bigger than the, um, the Parthenon. Am I getting that right? Pantheon, Parthenon, Parthenon in Athens, Greece. Pantheon is in Rome um, because the R is in Parthenon and it's in Athens. Anyway, that doesn't make sense, but it does. Um, so it's multiple times bigger, but, but Artemis, this, this great goddess, um, her, her, her temple was there um, and, and this really eclectic, vibrant trade city uh, of Ephesus is right there on the coast of the Aegean, this Greek city. Um, and this church, these people who are in Christ, um, start to gather at Ephesus. And it's this powerful thing um, that, that you see played out in Acts 19 and even Acts 20, okay? Um, and then Paul writes this letter to the Ephesians, to these Christians who are trying to live out this identity in Christ, but they're trying to do it at Ephesus, this city that's full of all the isms that we have here today in Bloomington, right? Like this city is a pluralistic city. So there's, there's pluralism that you just see dealt with and how the gospel addresses that. And we'll see that throughout our union series. Um, there, there's a lot of sensualism, right? Because of the, the pagan worship practices uh, and how's the gospel speak to that ism. Um, there's a lot of materialism. Um, again, you can see this in, in Acts uh, 19, um, and, and how that plays out. And you can see just remnants of it all throughout Ephesians. And so I can't think of a more timely book for us to look at as a young church plant um, as we truly try to understand what does it mean to be the church, okay? What does it mean to be the church? Um, and if we could look, man, if we could look like one-tenth, maybe one-twentieth, I don't know, one-fiftieth of what is laid out here in the book of Ephesians, I would be just over the moon delighted, okay? Because it's a, it's a, um, it's a lofty kind of aspirational picture of what the church should be, all right? So in Christ at Ephesus, that's verse one, but I also wanna call your attention uh, to verse two uh, with this greeting, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, because I just wanna draw your attention to this, um, this, this, really common kind of Greco-Roman greeting, um, but what, it, what it's trying to communicate about the core of the gospel, all right? That, that the source of the gospel is grace and the outflow, right, uh, of the gospel is peace, right? The gospel is God's initiation towards us. It's unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor because God is gracious, not because we 
We deserve his grace, right? That's the, the essence of grace. Uh, and the, the fruit of that, the outflow of that is peace. It's peace between us and God, all right? So there's a locational and positional reality. Um, and then I, I want us to grasp these, these um, relationship changes, okay? Look how Paul, the apostle, in greeting the church in Ephesians, the faithful saints who are in Christ, refers to God and refers to to Jesus Christ. All right? It says, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is all I want to point out real quickly because it's going to color in what we're going to go through in these next uh, couple verses. A Christian is someone who sees God as our Father. A Christian is someone who sees God as our Father. That is a very radical idea. All right? When, when the Christian message came forth 2,000 years ago, and Jesus started talking that way, every good Jew was incensed and offended at such a statement. That a great God who could create the cosmos by singing it into existence could be that intimate that you could say, hey, daddy. A Christian is someone who sees and knows and relates to God as their heavenly father, okay? And so God goes from, yes, your honor, to, hey, dad. That's what happens when you become a Christian. He's not a judge in a courtroom. He's dad sitting in his chair. All right? But not only does the picture of who God is, is change, but the picture of who Jesus is changes. All right? Because Jesus Christ moves from, hey, bro, my homeboy, to yes, Lord, my king. A Christian sees God as their father in deep intimacy, and they see Jesus as their king in deep reverence, okay? And it's this picture of who God is, who Jesus Christ is, that, that just wows Paul and moves him to move his life and preach this life-changing, this world-shaking gospel message all through the Greco-Roman world and to ultimately help found this church here in the ancient city of Ephesus. And then he writes this letter on back to them. And it's a powerful, powerful letter. So I'm, um, in a word, pumped uh, to preach through it. But I, I want us to start small, all right? So I, I'm gonna grab four short verses for us this morning uh, in three through six. Um, okay, so there's the series introduction, but here we are this morning, um, and I want to break this down a little bit. Now, I had Maria uh, read the first 14 verses of the letter, because verses 3 through 14 are actually one long run-on sentence in the Greek. All right, it's one sentence, okay? 202 words, all right? Um, and Paul doesn't stop, right? He just, he almost like takes a deep breath and just goes. Like I, I grew up in the 90s, greatest generation ever, um, greatest decade ever. Um, and there was a Reliant, do we remember Reliant K? Reliant K, anyone? Yeah? I wasn't a huge Reliant K fan, um, but they were, they were huge. And um, yeah, if you, if you like ever went to any youth group event ever, um, I don't know, there, it was playing in the background. And they had this song called Gibberish. And I actually had friends that like memorized this song that said nothing, you know? So I don't know, I, I read these, these verses in three through 14, I'm like, if there's one sentence, one just long run on thing that you could memorize that would actually change your life, like don't go for Reliant K. Gibberish, like go for these verses. Because what Paul's about to lay out here is just an unbelievable exaltation of God's salvation and his work in the world, okay? 
Um, and basically it moves in three chunks, all right? It's gonna talk about how the Father chooses, the Son redeems, and the Spirit seals. And to not miss the forest amongst the trees, you're gonna see a triune God working in power to bring about ends that you couldn't bring for yourself, but you desperately needed God to, okay? So I'm gonna focus in on God choosing in these first couple of verses, verses three through six, and it really is this like cascade of praise. It's this eulogy, if you will, because eulogies are often spoken, but sometimes they're written. They're often after a death of someone, but sometimes before, and Paul gives this eulogy to who God is and who the Son is, and in these verses, 3 through 14, he's going to use the phrasing in Christ 11 times, okay? And eulogy just means true words. It means praise, and this is his response when he thinks about God as our Father and Jesus Christ as our Lord. So I want to start with this question. What do you think about when you think about God? The Knowledge of the Holy is a, a great read by um, kind of a modern-day mystic, uh, a man named A.W. Tozer. Uh, and his statement uh, to open that book um, is to the extent of the things that you think about when you think about God are the most important things about you. I'll say it again. The things that you think about when you think about God are the most important things about you. Second to that are the things you think about when you think about other people. But what frames your understanding of reality? And we're all working from something, but what do your thoughts about God say about you? What's your initial reaction when you just think about the being that is God? Paul's initial reaction is to just go off in this one long run on sentence, right? He's writing to the Ephesians, he's got some things to say, and he thinks about God as our Father, and Jesus Christ as our Lord, and he can't not just go, Like, do you not understand that the Heavenly Father chooses us to be adopted as sons, that the Son redeems us by his own blood and the Spirit seals us as what we get to foretaste now, we can have confidence we'll have it in full when we stand before him in eternity. And he can't just not exalt in praise. And so what I want to do is look at this idea of being chosen in Christ, all right, being chosen in Christ. This idea of of us relating to God no longer based upon performance but position in Christ and how that should change literally every practice in your life. That if this idea deeply roots itself deep in your heart, you won't ever be the same. And if you are, you're not understanding the gospel. I'll say it another way. Um, If when you read about the reality of what God's done, you don't have a response similar to Paul's, which is praise, you're not understanding the gospel. Okay, so this is where we're going in these, these quick four verses. The blessing of being chosen, the instrument and the response, okay? The blessing of being chosen, the instrument and the response, all right? Um, So just real quick, look at verse three. Um, When you become a Christian, your possessions change, all right? Look at the verse says, it says, blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, all right? I want you to grasp the immensity of that statement. Every spiritual, blessings in the, every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. 
Do you know, if you are a Christian, that the moment you became a Christian, you were granted access to every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ? I want you to think about that for a second, okay? The moment you became a Christian, that's what was access to you. So um, think about, I'll use an analogy with the U.S. president, okay? Um, you are elected to the presidency. I mean, is there anybody in here that's got a shot? Like, do you have a friend next to you? You're like, I don't know, dude, like this guy or this gal, you know? I don't, anybody, anybody confident enough? Okay, well, look, all right, it's a far-fetched analogy, but just go with me. You're, you're elected to the presidency, all right? Um, and you're given top secret clearance. There's probably something above that, but it's so secret you don't even know right? But it's a, it's a top, top secret, right? Um, you're given top secret clearance. What's the first thing you do? Come on, you haven't thought about this? Aliens, right, exactly. Thank you. I want to know about aliens and JFK. Like I'm asking some questions, right? I got my hand on the Bible and I'm leaning over to whoever the CIA director is. Like, I'm just like, all right, dude, just give it to me. This is the whole reason I ran. Like all the promises. I don't care about the wall. Like I just, you know, um, so I want to know about aliens, right? It's like being given top secret clearance and not using it to ask about aliens, all right? It's like, it's like being given Air Force One, and I actually think there's three or there might, there might even be more than that. You know there's like some secret like space shuttle too, um, right? You got Air Force One, you got Marine One, you got the Beast, which is this bulletproof limousine that, that the president rides in. Like, it's like being like, no, I'm going to Uber, it's like, no, I'm not going to Uber. You're going to shut that city down. I'm going to roll right through it twice just so people know I'm here, you know? Like, there's just things that you have access to when you become the U.S. president that hopefully you take advantage of, right? When you get out of the presidency, they're going to build you a library, which is just a nice way of building you a monument. But we don't do that. The Europeans do that. So we, we make a library, you know? But it's like, no, I'm just going to store my stuff on Dropbox. I got to, you know... My Uncle Larry's got like, you know, this shed in the back of his house. We'll put my presidential records in there. It's like, no, I'm going to take full advantage of everything afforded to me. Do you not understand, Christian, that when your position changes and you are in Christ, that you are granted every single spiritual blessing in the heavens? Access like that, all right? Now, spiritual character takes time to develop. Spiritual maturity takes time to develop. Spiritual giftings are myriad, and the Spirit gifts individual believers in this local church differently so that mutually we can encourage one another and build one another up and be interdependent. But the spiritual blessings in Christ, just sit and ponder that for a second. What is true of he, he being Jesus, is true of me. And that's tied to our position in Christ and his relationship to the Father. Okay, and so I, I want to jump next to the instrument of being chosen because the instrument is adoption. It's a relational change. Look at verses four through five. For he, being God the Father, chose us in him, God the Son, before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. All right, the instrument of being chosen, what's true is that when you became a Christian, your position changed. All right, you, you, you went from being an enemy of God to not a servant, 
but a son. And I'm talking about relationally. Daughter, we'll throw it in there too, okay? Because the context of this is actually dealing with inheritance, all right? So it's not about gender, it's about inheritance. And the son inherits, the firstborn son inherits. And the firstborn son being Jesus Christ took his inheritance and he shared it with you and me. Do you understand the radical implications of that truth? That again, every religion contrived by man, every religion is about performing something to become someone. Christianity uniquely is different. Every religion is about doing something before being something. Christianity flips that. The gospel flips that. You become someone by God's grace through faith. Your identity is transformed. You are recreated from the ground up. And that changes everything about your doing, about your praxis in life. Christianity says position determines your identity, okay? And so, again, that's the whole of Ephesians. First three chapters is position change. Latter three chapters is practice change, all right? Sit in it for a second. The gospel comes in and says that you and me, who are enemies of God, are not just forgiven and therefore servants, but were reconciled and adopted as sons and daughters. Um, the most famous uh, example of this in the Greco-Roman world um, is Julius Caesar's adoption of Octavian. All right, so I'm gonna go to a little Roman history because this theme is, is familiar in the context that the Apostle Paul's writing it. All right, but Julius Caesar um, is actually not the father of Octavian. Okay, so Julius Caesar, um, you know, I mean, Julius Caesar, if I have to explain who that is, you didn't pay attention in class. Um, and uh, Caesar Augustus, or Octavian, who follows Julius Caesar when he's stabbed in the back, and it's like, oh, you too, Brute, right? Um, that's Octavian. That was his great nephew. All right, and upon the death of Julius Caesar, Octavian, 19, assumes the throne. And this is the first emperor of Rome. All right, not Julius Caesar, but Caesar Augustus. All right, he was adopted, okay? Uh, and therefore, he inherited his great uncle's name, estate, position, and the loyalty of his legions just by his relationship with him. That was legally, you know, written out. He didn't even know it. It's like, wait, what? I get, I get all this? And it's like, yeah, yeah. No, he adopted you before, you know, before he got stabbed in the back, you know? Think about the reality of that, okay, when it comes to our inheritance with God the Father because of what God the Son has done. Think about what's afforded us. I mean, if the Roman Empire has afforded Octavian, what has afforded you, son, or you, daughter, if you're in Christ? What does Christ the Son have because of the graciousness of God the Father and invite you into and you get to experience, right? It's a powerful, powerful idea. Adoption changes our inheritance, okay? And it should change our intimacy. And again, this is not about sons. Um, it's not a gender issue here. It's, a, it's a, uh, a legal adoption issue. It's an inheritance issue, okay? But if you're a son or a daughter, 
um, and I've used these analogies before, um, your intimacy should change. Um, my kiddos, I have uh, eight, six, and four um, little kiddos, and um, they're invited into what I call my sacred spaces. All right, I have sacred spaces, right? They're, they're untouchable to most, but only touchable to a few, all right? One is my bed. Like, I love you. I'll call you family, but like, that's weird if you ever come to my house and I go upstairs and somehow you're just taking a nap in my bed without asking. Like, please don't do that. I'm gonna have to wash my sheets. It's, it's just, it's just, it's a mess, right? That's weird, right? Or, or my plate. My plate is a sacred space for me. Like, we're supposed to be food sharing, but like, you gotta ask if you're gonna take my last piece of steak. You just gotta ask, right? Like, I'm gonna try not to be mad, but like, I'd be mad if you did that, you know? And Derek would pull something like that, right? Because I angle my steaks to have the, the last bite be the best bite, right? And so I'm like, I'm working a project while I'm eating, right? There, there's thought to it, okay? Um, I have sacred spaces, and my kids are all up in those sacred spaces, okay? They're all up in those sacred spaces. My kids assume the privilege, the audacity, to climb up into my bed every night, <laughs> every night. Sweet little Emma is in my bed every night. Sweet little Emma assumes the privilege of climbing my lap and eating from my plate after she's had her dinner. She doesn't ask. She just eats. My kids assume the privilege of interrupting my work. This morning, waking up at 4.30 a.m., working on this sermon. My kids aren't up then, but pitter-patter, pitter-patter around 7 o'clock. Right? It's not like, oh, dad's working. You know, it's like, ah! you know. All right, take a coffee break. Because why? Barbie needs her hair brushed. It's more important. It's more important. My, my kids assume the privilege, right? There's an intimacy there, okay? Um, and I, I could go on with a, a whole list of things. My, my kids, they assume I'm going to leave them something when I die. Like, how dare they? They didn't work for anything. I tell my kids all the time, you own nothing. I own everything. But they assume, like, they're going to get one-third of my estate. I'm like, come on, you know? There's an intimacy shift because of the positional change. Do you realize, Christian, that you were adopted as a son or daughter and you weren't just forgiven as a servant? And do you relate to God as your father that way? I think I used this example um, maybe a series ago when we were preaching through Galatians. But I love the picture of, of JFK Jr. under his father's desk in the Oval Office. Right? And you're like, what the audacity? <laughs> the audacity of JFK Jr. to crawl under daddy's desk and not just knock on the door like an intern and be beckoned in to scepter is held out, right? There's an intimacy there because it's his dad. All right? Lastly, real quick, we're going to keep going. The response of being chosen, okay? The response of being chosen. When you become a Christian, your purpose changes. I want you to look at this language, closing out in verse 6. It says, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. All right? To the praise of his glorious 
grace. Do you know that when you became a Christian, you were transformed into such, ultimately for God's glory, not your own? All right. Um, if you've been a Christian for, for a long enough length of time, you'll, you'll start to look back on like what first led you to Christ. And I think um, every Christian kind of has this experience where you start to realize, like, man, I, I kind of came to Christ with selfish motives. Like, I almost came for my glory, not his, you know? Like, there, there were things that I thought God could afford me, and God in his graciousness, like, just didn't, like, you know, stiff arm me, right? But, but like, my motives weren't really pure. I wanted God's blessing on my family, on, on my grades, on, on my, my dating relationship, Right? But a lot of times we can get salvation framed up as if it's about us. In this whole passage, it's all about God. Look at the language <laughs> in verse six, to the praise of his glorious grace. Like the end of it is all for his glory, which is like why Paul can't not just give this eulogy of praise when he's thinking about God and his work in salvation. And he's just standing in awe, and that is for our good. It's a very God-centric picture of salvation, rightly so. Because salvation starts and stops with him. It's his work. It's what he brings about. And if you're a Christian, God chose you in Christ, and he did it before the foundation of the world. In love, he predestined you to be adopted as sons or daughters. I'm just repeating the language again because it's, it's so powerful. And he did it for the good pleasure of his will. Now, application. Um, I want to address the, the elephant in the text, okay? Because um, there's a word in here that really kind of just makes us stop. And maybe you're stuck on it too because when Maria read it, that's all you've been thinking about. All right, the word's predestined. All right, and this is why I, I didn't preach three through 14. I wanted to just take this first chunk um, because I wanted to look at, at ultimately being chosen in Christ. Um, and I wanted to look at this idea of what, what does it mean to be predestined, okay? And let me just comment on the common, yet I think inappropriate response to that idea because of the cultural waters we swim in, all right? Um, it's a loaded word, but I think at its core, what it's pricking in you and me um, is this sense of a loss of freedom, right? Like, you're just like, wait a minute, all right? And it kind of goes like this. Like, if, if I've been predestined since the, the foundation of the world, like, what's the point? Like, you know, like, I, I don't have any choice. I don't have any autonomy. And that, like, that just offends our sensibilities as 21st century modern Americans, doesn't it? All right, we can nod. We can be honest about that. So let me, let me just go at this a few different ways. Um, Charles Spurgeon, one of my, my favorite um, preachers, uh, 18th century preacher from, from England, when asked about just the, the seemingly dichotomous reality of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, um, his response was brilliant. He said this, he said, I never reconciled two friends. I never reconciled two friends. What he was saying is in our economy, they look like enemies. They look like contradictions, but in God's economy, they're not. All right, so let me just challenge you in a couple of different ways. One, um, let me, and this isn't a sidestep to a hard question, but let me challenge you in thinking that just because it's not coherent to you, it's not coherent. All right, because 
the coherency of an idea is not based upon your ability to grasp it. All right, don't give yourself too much credit, okay? You might go to Kelly, you know, might be a business manager, I don't know, but you're just not that smart, okay? Um, can I say a few things that drive me nuts? You go to IU, you don't go to Kelly or Jacobs, like just, I don't know, that just drives me crazy. And Aggies, I don't like Aggies, anyway. Um, oh, something else that drives me crazy, I bought pizza last night from Da Vinci. I picked it up myself. And I was asked, do I want to leave a tip? I said, no. And I was asked again, do I want to leave a tip? And I said, no, I'm picking it up. And I thought to myself, but didn't say it, you are doing nothing. Look, I, in high school, and we're getting way off. In high school, I delivered pizzas. I delivered pizzas. I got paid $2.50 an hour to deliver pizzas and then my speediness, my smile, I don't know what it is, but like that got me my tips. You're getting paid $15 an hour and I'm picking it up and you want me to tip? Anyway, I sound like an old man. I need to be in those like, what are they, the Farm Bureau commercials or something like that. I'm gonna Velcro my, you know, remote um, to my coffee table and I'm gonna wrap a meatball, singular meatball and put it in the freezer. Um, anyway, I'm old, millennials. Um, where are we? Free will, predestination, of course. That's where we are. Um, let's not be so brash that our inability to comprehend, right, the, the, the inner workings of God's redemptive plan mean that it's incomprehensible or, or incoherent, uh, I guess, right? Um, there's my timer. Um, so let's just start with that, okay? Um, in God's economy, I don't think they're enemies. I think they're friends. Because in God's economy, which is what he reveals to us in this Bible that I'm not gonna pick up because I'll drop my iPad, um, both are true. Both are true. God is sovereign over salvation, okay? But you have responsibility for your choices, all right? Free will is a misnomer. If by free will we mean autonomy from any outside being or force affecting your decisions, the only being in the cosmos that has free will is God himself. Like just think about that. Think about how contingent you are, all right? You were born, all right? God preexisted. You were born, all right? You had no control over when you were born. You had no control over where you were born. You had no control over who you were born to. You had no control over what order you were born in that family. You had no control over who was your best friend neighbor that you moved next to or your worst enemy neighbor that you moved next to. You had no control over that awesome teacher that taught you that, that, that subject that you love and now you're going after with gusto or that awful teacher that taught you that subject that you hate, that you want nothing to do with. Like so many things in our lives that have shaped so much of us, we have zero control over. Free will's a misnomer. All right, this is what the Bible says in relation to that. That God created us, obviously, with a degree of freedom, because freedom is necessary for relationship. Right, and God's relationship with man is one of love, 
Like, so it connotes freedom. Like, there's, there's freedom to choose and freedom to reject God. But what Adam and Eve did, we all do, is we reject God. We use that freedom not to choose God, but to choose everything but him. To choose the created over the creator. And the Bible is also crystal clear that we are culpable for those bad choices. We are responsible for those choices. If there was anybody that had any chance, really, honestly, when you actually think about the whole meta narrative of scripture, had any chance to actually get it right, it was Adam. But like we're actually even a step behind Adam because the curse of sin is such that it's even just broken our, our desires that much more and tainted our flesh that much more, corrupted our flesh that much more. That we can't not not choose God. That's what makes God's graciousness in choosing us so amazing. Because we would like to think we would choose him, but we don't. So underneath all of this, underneath this problem with predestination, it's really not a problem with predestination. That word kind of weirds us out, but it's like, look, everybody wants to be chosen. So it's not a problem with choice, right? We all want the rose, right? It's like, of course I want to be. I don't want to pick last on the dodgeball field, you know? Or the dodgeball court, they don't have a dodgeball field, dodgeball court. I want to be chosen. The, the chosen word doesn't bother us. I don't think predestination bothers us. Like, I think it's awesome, right, that God wasn't willy-nilly where it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I mean, I see these humans over here. Let me just kind of like, you know, change the situation. Like, God gave some forethought to his graciousness extended to us. Adoption doesn't bother us, but there's something underneath that, and it, it's, 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 it's this sense that our autonomy is like kind of, constrained. And so the second question that maybe the follow-up question is, what does it say, our reaction? What does our reaction say about how we view ourselves? Let me just give you a few. I bet you it probably suggests you don't believe you're that bad. Right? Right? That, that, that's what kind of smacks us in the face when we start to really deal with this issue. And again, the Bible is crystal clear. We do have a degree of freedom of choice, but none, none choose God. We all choose lesser things. And God in his graciousness reaches down and chooses us. He reaches down and chooses us, Okay. So um, let me deal with the flip side of that, which is um, how do we then um, embrace God's embrace, okay? Um, if adoption's a house, let me go with this analogy real quick. It looks kind of scary from the outside, right? It looks nice, but kind of scary, right? Like, I don't, I don't know. Like, Derek talks about, like, what they do on date nights, driving around looking at houses, you know? Um, so we'll, we'll go with that analogy. Like, you're looking at a house, and you're like, oh, that's nice, but, like, you're not going to, like, walk in it, you know? It's just kind of like, it's just this kind of framed up thing. And you're like, yeah, I, I like that. It's cutesy. Um, it's charming, but it's just, it's hard to access, okay? But when it's your house, right, you, you walk in the doors and it's, it's quite different, all right? It's not somebody else's, okay? Um, and man, you live it up. You use it, you know? You're going in the fridge, you know, you're flipping on TV, um, when adoption is just some doctrine out there, it seems a little off limits, okay? 
And I think a lot of times, if we're honest, when we're, when we're thinking about this idea, we may be thinking about ourselves, but a lot of times we're thinking about our loved ones. Right? At least that's where I go. If this is true, what does that mean for them? Well, let's, let's see what the text says versus like deal with what the text doesn't. And what does it say for you? And I think there's one of two type of people in here, or maybe one of three. You're either a Christian and adoption to you isn't this kind of like thing over here that you're standing on the street looking at. Like, man, you're making full use of that reality. You're running in the house, you're using it up. Okay? There's the Christian that, they, that is living out of their positional identity. All right? Then there's the Christian that maybe you just became a Christian or you've been a Christian for a while. You've just never matured. You've never grown up, right, um, spiritually speaking. And so you've stepped inside the house, positionally, locationally, but you've, like, lived in the foyer. I would encourage you, like, use the whole thing, you know. Like, go sleep in the master bedroom, right? Use the TV room. Step into the jacuzzi. It's your house. Live it up. But then, yes, there are those that are in this room that go, man, I don't have any confidence that that's my house, that positionally I'm in Christ, that, that I've ever really heard the gospel this way. And the way you're talking about it is just so different from, from maybe what you've grown up hearing in church or you've never stepped foot in a church, and it's radically different from what this, this world kind of tells you. I want you to know that the, the door's flung wide open. It's an open invitation to anyone at any time. That this, this doctrine of, of adoption um, and God's choice, really, okay, um, it's, it's available to all, but it's effectual to those that respond to it. Does that make sense? I'll say that again. It's available to all, but it's effectual to those that respond to it. Because there is an element of your will and how you respond or don't respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because here's what's true. For all of this to happen, what it took is what we're going to talk about next week, but what it took was nothing less than the sacrifice of the very Son of God, eternally existent with the Father, who understood sonship, enjoyed all the benefits of it, and in his grace and mercy put it all aside and left heaven and came to earth and lived the life you and I should have lived, died the death you and I should have died, and upon resurrection affords us an inheritance that was solely for him, but he graciously, graciously, graciously shares with you and me. That's the beauty of adoption, that it, it costs Christ something immense, not just his life, but he, he's bringing us into the family to share an inheritance with us. And it should, if, if, if we really understand it, it should lead us to do nothing but just praise God the Father for it. That he chose us in Christ. And if our response isn't anything like the Apostle Paul's, we're not hearing it. So uh, as we close, as the the band kind of comes forward. I want to pray this prayer over us, and it's a prayer we're going to actually going to get to um, a couple weeks from now because um, this is where Paul feels led to go. But I, I want to pray that we understand the reality of what it means to be chosen in Christ and the positional change that takes place and then everything that flows from it. So I'm going to, I'm going to pray this scripture over us, which is in the back half of chapter 1, and then we can go to the Lord's table and 
thank God the Father that we can be rightly related to him because of what God the Son has done. Here's my prayer for you, embassy. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards you who believe, according to the mighty working of his strength. These things I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening. To learn more about us or to get connected, please visit embassybtown.org.